This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 180. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I'm joined by Nick Page, and also um, a voice coming back, but uh, who has only been on a few times, is Larissa Gobet. So Larissa, will you introduce yourself in a sentence or two? Yeah, my name is Larissa Gobetz, and I'm outside of St. Augustine, Florida. I photograph, not shoot, children <laughs> and <laughs> and all kinds of things, weddings and everything. I do a lot of event photography, and it's good to be here. Great. We're glad to have you, Larissa. And also, Neil Ritchie is the first time he has been on the podcast. We got to meet him in uh, China, and so we're glad to have him on. Okay. Yeah. Hey guys, I'm Neil. I am here uh, in a small town in Northern Ireland. Uh, I shoot and photograph uh, lots of different things. I'm uh, pretty much an amateur or enthusiast photographer, just getting the grips with various bits and pieces, but a good, great time in China with these guys and really looking forward to being on the podcast today. We're glad to have you here. All right, today is an all-question-and-answer uh, podcast. We had a ton of, of questions come in uh, from from you guys, and so we are going to try to knock as many of them down as possible. The first question comes from Nelson Tapias, uh, who says, I just purchased a three-stop breakthrough ND filter. Um, my guess is on is that's on Nick Page's recommendation, um, and would love some tips on shooting <clears throat> speed lights with a uh, ND filter. Do any of you use ND filters with speed lights? I've done it before, but it's not something I do regularly. I do it occasionally, and the 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 main time that I like to do it is if, if I'm doing kind of a middle of the day shot or shoot. Uh, when I'm trying to overpower the ambient light and I'm using a whole lot of flash, uh, you can do it without an ND filter. But the problem with that is by the time you overpower that ambient light, you're using like f-stops like f11, f16, and you're no longer getting a shallow depth of field. You're not really isolating your subject. But what's cool about throwing an ND filter on is that that allows you to start using those shallower depth of field uh, with speed lights so you're able to like isolate them and separate them from the background without shallower depth of field but you're still able to overpower the ambient light um so yeah that's when i do it it works pretty well uh the problem there are a few issues with it uh one of them is that your camera doesn't love focusing through any kind of nd filter really as long as you're like in a really bright shooting situation it works all right that and you, you're going to end up shooting your speed lights at, like at full power all the time unless you got a whole bunch of them because um, you're stop you know you're using three stops of of your power so you're going to end up like flying through batteries so uh, that's when I've used it. Yeah, and it, it it's a cool idea, and you know there are some shoots, some shots that are you know impossible to get without an ND yep. filter during the day. The reason that I find that it's maybe not super essential to be doing roll regularly is when you're using flash, the person is all automatically set off from the background using light. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to have depth of field to set them off the off the background too. And so I think it's a cool effect. Um, but but maybe that's why it's not more common as you're already setting them, right. you're already calling attention to the person with the light. Yeah, the main the main time, like I said, is when it's really really bright outside. Like you're you're doing that that one o'clock photo shoot in the middle of the summer. That's a tough shooting situation. 
But if you, you know, have an ND filter, several flashes, you can really overpower that ambient light and still get, a, you know, a fairly shallow depth of field. Do you use it mostly for weddings and stuff, Nick? Uh, no, I never do it at weddings because <laughs> it's, it's more work. So usually the, the type of shooting situation I will use it in is like a uh, senior portrait kind of thing. Um, and really, it's not something that I, I bust out very often. I, I like to, um, as much as I can, if I'm using flash, I'll typically take them into kind of a shady area, especially if I'm shooting during that time of the day, because no amount of flash is going to make those photos look wonderful, because middle of the day just sucks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, David Long asks, increasingly I see people used in landscape shots. So maybe could you guys talk about the pros and cons of the practice? Are there any best practices and tips for doing that? So uh, putting yourself or putting somebody else in a landscape photography shot can really take it to the next level because it gives it scale. Um, so many times, like when we have this big grand landscape in front of us, if there's not something given at scale, it could be a macro shot for all the viewer knows because uh, it is, in wide angle shots, scale just isn't conveyed very well. So um, I don't do it very often because I'm not the most photogenic guy in the world. <laughs> but if I was thin and trim, I would put myself in those shots a little bit more often. Uh, <clears throat> but when I do do it, uh, a few things that I find really help are if there's a main subject to the photo, like maybe there's a waterfall or a mountain peak or something, I keep in mind that there's no longer going to be just one subject to the photo. There's going to be two. There's going to be the person and the mountain or the waterfall or whatever. So you have to really keep the composition in mind. You need to kind of balance that main subject with the the person in the photo. So keep it in in um, uh, that in mind when you're thinking about your composition. Also, the further into that photo and the smaller that person gets, the more impactful the scale is. So if you're really wanting to show off the scale of a photo, don't have the person really close to the camera. Have them deep into the shot. That way it's really showing off how big and massive this place is. Now, yeah, especially if you're using a wide-angle exactly. lens. If the person's close to you and you're using a wide-angle lens, the person is going to look way huge exactly. and everything else is going to be tiny. And so the person is just going to kind of overpower things mm -hmm. and it's going to start to look like a portrait. Now, the problem with that is that you can only get so far away from your camera uh, <laughs> in, in like 10 seconds. So one of the most uh, there's two very useful tools for this. Uh, one is going to be just a wireless shutter release. And I'm not talking about the little IR one that the, like, you know, it comes for like two or three dollars where you point at your camera and goes off because that's not going to work from 300 feet away. You're going to want something that actually has like a little antenna and plugs into the side of your camera, just like a wired shutter release, only it's wireless. A lot of those will have like a line of sight um, radius of like 300, maybe even 500 feet. So that works pretty well. Or you could use something like a cam ranger. I've done it that way where I can go way, way far away and trigger it wirelessly with my cam ranger. And then you like put it on two second timer, hit the shutters, shove your phone in your pocket and then get your epic selfie that way. Um, astrophotography shots. Those are 
those are like the best for the epic selfie, but you want to make yourself nice and small in the frame. And that means getting far away. And it's best not to see how far you can sprint in the dark in 10 seconds. You're better off just using some kind of wireless shutter release. How about you guys? Uh, Neil, do you do anything like that? Uh, yeah, I've used it a few times, really just kind of walked into the frame. I find it, uh, I really use it to add a bit of interest. If maybe the foreground isn't that exciting or the midground isn't that exciting, but you've got kind of an epic vista in the background, if you kind of walk into it yourself or place someone else into it, you can just add that foreground interest and just add depth to your image, Absolutely. which is sort of what takes your landscapes to the next level. And mm -hmm. I, I've kind of done that and I find it really useful as well. So, Cool. I like it Very when cool. um, the person is silhouetted in the photograph. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so if you have a, a nice waterfall or something, putting that subject against that waterfall and having having them silhouetted against it. Uh, Majid's got a really epic, uh, well, all of his are really epic <laughs> selfies, yeah. it seems like. He, Majid's like the master at the epic selfie, but uh, one of his that I was actually there helping him trigger his, his camera for uh, is... It's just excellent to silhouette the person against a bright part of the photo. That works really well. Very cool. Okay, the next question comes from Dieter Horst, uh, who says he switched from Canon to Fuji and has been having trouble with correct focus. Um, do different systems have different tricks for AF? Well, Fuji absolutely has some different tricks uh, for autofocus. Um, first of all, I, I should say that the Fuji X-T1, as I've been saying, um, is a great camera. It's Achilles heel is the focus. Uh, Fuji has completely knocked this out of the park now uh, with the Fuji X-Pro2 uh, that I really believe is the best autofocus camera in the world. Um, it may not be as fast for continuous focus as, in, as a you know Nikon D5 or something like that um, just for the continuous focus, even though it has very good uh, continuous focus. In my testing, it beat the Canon 7D Mark II, which is pretty impressive. That's a good autofocus camera, uh, and it beat it in continuous focus. Uh, but also it fo autofocuses incredibly well in low light and has tons of autofocus points. I mean, covering like every imaginable area in the photo. So that's why I really like it on the X-Pro2. My guess is if he has this question, it's because he has the X-T1, which isn't as good with autofocus. Yeah, I can. But, Sorry, go on. but there is a setting in the Fuji X-T1 that you need to go in there. I can't remember what they call it, uh, but it has, a, I think it's called performance mode under the uh, autofocus. It's been so long, I can't remember. Uh, and if you turn that on, it really does help the autofocus a lot for the X-T1. Yeah, Jim, I was going to agree with you there. I shouldn't X-T1. And you really do need to turn that performance mode on to get the autofocus kind of working at its best. But even then, I find that I miss slightly more shots than I would like. Uh, but then you kind of counterbalance that with, I I like manual focus quite a bit and zoom focusing. It depends, I guess, it depends what he's shooting and stuff. But if you, certainly with the focus peaking that, if you're shooting landscapes and you can use manual focus. So I, I guess it depends totally on what he's shooting there. Hmm. Very cool. Jeremy S. Lanthorne says, how large of a shoot-through umbrella 
will a single flash light up? Um, and how big can you go before you're going to need a studio strobe or multiple speed lights? Uh, I don't think you're going to have any problem with this. I, I've shot the huge, massive six-foot umbrellas uh, uh, with a speed light and not had any problem. Uh, you may may want a little bit more power just because you have a huge light modifier and it's going to be a little bit further away. Uh, so you could use two speed lights, but shouldn't be an issue at all. Nick, I know there's something that you do pretty often. Yeah. Uh, how, how's it been for you? <clears throat> so uh, I often, I use a 60 inch umbrella all the time with one speed light and it fills it most of the way up. But you got to keep in mind that even if it doesn't fill it from, you know, edge to edge, it's still feathering out the edges and you're still getting the effect of that huge umbrella. Um, I use, I, I have a seven footer, seven foot umbrella. And I, sometimes if I need more power because they're, they're not quite as translucent when you get those big ones, sometimes they're a little thicker material. Uh, mm -hmm. sometimes if I need more power, I'll definitely use a, a triple flash bracket or something. But often, oftentimes you don't need it to fill that entire umbrella to still reap the benefits of having that big umbrella, because even if it's not completely filled up, it's still kind of a reflector and still adding a little bit of softness to the catch light. So, yeah, I, I don't even hesitate to use a 60 inch or even a seven foot umbrella with just one speed light. And don't forget, it depends on the distance of the flash from the umbrella. Yes. Yeah. So it, the bigger your umbrella is, the more distance you want between your flash and where it hits the umbrella. That way it's got a little bit of time to spread. And uh, if, if you're using those really big umbrellas, just flipping out that little diffuser thing that nobody really understands what it is that comes on the end of your flash, uh, that helps spread it even a little bit more. And make sure you check the zoom of your flash. Make sure you're shooting it at its widest possible focal length. Um, a lot of times they're 24 millimeters. Some even go to 14. Uh, just making sure that it kind of it's spreading that light around. Um, and this is easy enough. to check too. Uh, if if you're not sure if it's filling it up, all you really have to do is just set your mm -hmm. settings really really dark, and then just take a picture of the umbrella, like shoot right at the flash, and you'll see how much of the umbrella is white, and you know exactly where the light is sitting. Yep. Okay, Jim Barker says, uh, could you discuss the benefits of using back button focus? Ah, uh, back button focus. <laughs> Neil and I were just talking about this. Yes, so Neil were. and I were talking about this in China. Um, and I said that, you know, I have tried so many times to enjoy back button focus. And it's fancy. It seems cool. But it just is not functional except for the rare situation uh. Uh, where you need to use it. But it also adds some significant downsides. Um, one uh, major one is every time you hand a camera over to somebody else, <laughs> they uh, will have no idea how to use it. Um, and so that's always a problem on workshops or if you uh, want somebody to take a, a picture of you and your family. Um, and then the other thing is it's, you know, sometimes set up on a camera, sometimes not. And you've got to go through the hassle of setting it up. To me, it's just not worth it. You, you can do the same thing except for certain situations where you have to let off. Um, and it leads to lazy focusing, I think, uh, because, you know, you set your focus on the eye and then you're recomposing and shooting and shooting and shooting, but you're moving little bits each time. And so it's going to move that depth of field in a portrait. And so that is why I don't do it. And I happen to know we have a guy who disagrees with me. So oh, you <laughs> what do you think, two. Nick? Oh, we got two. Oh, nice. All right. It's oh. me and Neil again. <laughs> yeah, we're split 50-50 okay. here then. Yeah. So the only part I will agree with you is when you hand your camera off, I have so many blurry photos of myself from like handing my camera to somebody and 
and then trying to explain to them back button focus. They never get it. It's just pointless to even try to describe that at the moment. So I have lots of great blurry photos of me like holding cormorant birds and all the cool stuff that happened in China. No so in focus stuff. Yeah, I know. You, you, you're responsible for that, Neil. <laughs> but <clears throat> the rest of the time, back button focus is the best thing ever. Um, so I, I learned to do it because of sports photography. Sports photography, wildlife photography is very, very useful because if something's coming into your frame, you let go and it stops focusing. Uh, it's just really nice for that. It's also really nice. Wait, but it, you also do the same thing with the shutter button. You just let go. Yeah, except but then if I wanted to take a photo after I had let go, then I have to do that and then it has to refine focus. It's but it's sports. Eh. I mean, people moved in the time that somebody came in front anyway. Yeah, and yeah, back button's better. And <laughs> and and in portraits, it's great too because I get my focus on that one, and then I rattle off three photos, and I don't have to acquire focus in between those next that first one and the fourth one. And as long as they're not moving. No, but you you don't have to do that anyway. Just yeah. set it to continuous eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's assuming that your focus point is exactly where you want it to be. I can focus, recompose, and then rattle off four. And that's what I was so, talking about, lazy focus. No, that's not lazy focus. <laughs> you call it lazy. I call it superior. Efficient. Um, efficient, efficient focus. And probably when it's the most useful is landscape photography and astrophotography because you guys when it gets dark you have to flip your lenses into manual focus so you're not hunting for focus every single time you go to take a photo like after dark when it can't focus anymore me i never have to worry about that because it only focuses when i hit my little af button on the back of my camera what i have to do that once at the beginning of my shoot and then i'm good to go but so, surely uh, sorry surely that's the exception rather than the rule when it's dark when you're showing <laughs> wildlife and something might move. Shut up, Neil. You, <laughs> <laughs> you come on here and you argue with me? How dare you? <laughs> no, I'm a great agent. So like there's, it is an exception to the rule, but there's lots of exceptions to the rule. There's lots no, of times lots. that we've, I really like. We've only talked focus. about one I, legitimate one. I find that when I use the back button focus, I'm getting focus more times than when I'm using the shutter release. For but focus. why is that? I mean, they're both, I mean, it's just either you're sending the electric signal to the camera to tell it to focus from the back or the shutter button. I, I don't, I don't see what, what does it matter? It's one of those things, Jim. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things that until you do it for a while and you get to know. No, I've how, done it for a long time. I just don't see it. I, no, you, you obviously haven't done it quite long enough because you would, you be one of us, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, people who swear by the tablets, you know, Wacom tablet, Wacom tablet. Yes. Uh -huh. People who swear by those, they'll never go back. And when you first start doing it, it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of one of those things. It's just better once you give it a chance. So I, I encourage all of you listeners that are not swayed by Jim to go out and give it a try <laughs> and live with it for a month and a half. And you, you'll find that it's not just a sports thing. It's not just a landscape photography thing. It's just a become a better photographer thing. 
Well, I, I, I am with you there. This is obviously a personal preference thing, which is why we're having a little bit of fun with it. But obviously, this is personal preference, what you think, uh, which way you prefer to shoot. But I do think everybody should go do it. In fact, if you're going to do this, uh, our article on improved photography has ranked for years in number one for back button focus. So just Google back button focus in the improved photography article uh, is going to pop up and it has directions on a lot of common cameras on how to do this. Um, and, and I wrote that when I was on a back button focus kick that I, I really liked back button focus for a while. And eventually I just thought, why am I doing this? It's just adding complexity and not really giving me anything. So uh, I do think everybody should try it out. I just, for me, it just doesn't do anything. Yeah, I had tried it first, uh, probably about a year or two ago, and I didn't like it at all. And I went back to shooting with, you know, the shutter release. And then a couple of months ago, I was photographing a baby and it wasn't catching the focus like I wanted it to. And I switched over to back button focusing and I've been with it ever since. And the other day when I had rented the a 6300, I was like, man, I should set this up for back button focus. You know, it wasn't my camera, so I didn't, but I, I wanted to. Yeah. She's been a better photographer ever since she changed the back button. Focus. You <laughs> yes. Uh, very good. All right. The um, next question comes from Eric Anderson, um, who says he's going to be taking his first photography workshop in 10 days and would like to hear some advice from the IP team on what to expect and best practices for maximizing the opportunity. Um, I, I, I guess a couple things. First is um, Nick and I just did like a 45 minute long episode of tripod tripod is our nature photography podcast mostly about landscape photography um, and we just just a couple episodes ago we did a full episode on how to get the most out of photography workshops so check that out on youtube uh, or on the improved photography or just subscribe to the podcast whoever you uh, are getting these um, but check that out. Um, and Neil, I know you just attended a photography workshop taught by two idiots <laughs> yeah. uh, from Improved Photography, me and Nick. Um, so what kind of advice would you have? Yeah, that was actually my first photography workshop. So I'm kind of in a good position to answer this one. Uh, I think you certainly gave it in that tripod episode, but the best advice that I can give anybody is go and stand beside the instructor if you can, or whoever's leading the workshop. Just Go and stand beside them, and any question that comes into their head, just ask them, because that's what they're there, there to do. So if you can position yourself, you can put your tripod beside theirs, do that, and then any question that comes into their head, you, they're just right there to ask, and, and don't be afraid to ask questions, because they don't know what you don't know. You <laughs> yeah. know, they could make certain assumptions that you're at a certain level, and you're just not there yet. Uh, so if if no matter how big or small it is, just ask it, and I find that. The instructor, certainly the, the people I were with, were perfectly happy to answer any questions that you had. Uh, and I felt that was kind of easily the best way to learn. <clears throat> he was standing next to me the whole time. And he kept asking me, like, what mm -hmm. time is it? What time is it? Where are we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's that's my name lag. again? Yeah, that was just jet lag. <laughs> but yeah, so now, that's, no, that's the thing. If is you're you, standing next to, ahead. sorry, when you're standing next to the instructor, do you push the other person who's also standing next to Next to the instructor <laughs> out of the way. I kind of prefer a sharp elbow to the ribs. Okay, because I always ah, think everybody really can stand next to them. No, that was my. <laughs> no, my they can't. But the thing is, their foot, actually. it's it's strange. Every, everybody likes to learn differently, and so uh, something I've been trying to get better at. It, it really is a talent, and I, I'm not great at it yet. But when you're teaching a workshop, the hardest thing for the instructor. 
um, is to know what level of interaction mm -hmm. the, the students want. You would think they would want a lot. But uh, let me tell you for sure, there are people who don't like it when you give a lot of instruction. And, you know, they'll be the whole time be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. And you can tell they just want you to buzz off. They just want to shoot for a while. And they just kind of want to be there to help you to find great locations. Um, and so it really is a, a hard thing for, for me, uh, I think for most uh, photography workshop instructors, to, to get that just right. And the way to totally fix the problem that you'll always hear me asking people to do is just come shoot with me come come snuggle up your tripod and let's just shoot together and then even if you don't have a question like you can come ask me you'll sit there for a minute and you'll say well why are you doing it this way why are you doing that let's see what your composition is just like asking those why questions and then you end up learning a lot that maybe you couldn't formulate into a specific question to ask but you kind of pick up no you, de you definitely do because it's you may think you know what you're doing you may actually know what you're doing, but it's just things pop into your head or you'll see the guy beside you like moving position or changing settings or changing lenses that you might not have thought, you know, it just doesn't pop into your head to do. And even if it's not an instructor, it's someone else on the course. If you're standing beside them and watching what they do and you're just chatting and generally you don't know these people, so you're chatting about photography and it's just a great way, just the, the number of small things you pick up. And then by the end of the few days, they've just added up to you're just a better photographer, or that's what I find anyway. Yeah, that's the thing is when you get that many photographers around each other, there's always something to learn from somebody. And even if you're not snuggling your, your tripod up next to an instructor, go find like the best photographer in the group and snuggle up next to them and steal stuff, yeah. steal all their secrets while you're waiting to steal the instructor's secrets. So, yeah. <laughs> just steal everybody's good stuff yeah well we have lots to share with you in this episode of the podcast with tons more questions we're gonna have to get moving pretty quick um, but before we do that we want to take a second and thank two companies that have made the improved photography podcast possible uh, by sponsoring this episode um, right now the listeners to the podcast can get uh, one free month when they go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve. So what is The Great Courses? It's an awesome website for stretching your brain and just learning new things. The purpose of, of The Great Courses is to just give you the best instructors in all kinds of different uh, areas. Uh, they have a National Geographic photographer on there, so you can definitely learn photography. But more than that, I mean, you can learn philosophy and history. Nick, I've, I know you've taken mm -hmm. some of the great courses mm. in uh, in history before. I know you're a big history buff. Yep. Um, and, and I've taken a lot of the, the religion classes and, uh, and uh, biblical history classes that they have on their uh, language. I mean, all kinds of different things. Anything that you can expect uh, to find at a college, you can probably find something um, on the great courses there. So the Great Courses Plus is a subscription website that, that allows you to get uh, a lot of their courses, uh, their video uh, material, all in one spot. Uh, and it really is an amazing resource. Um, and so, you know, there's no tests, no homeworks, no no schedules or anything like that. It's not like uh, you're back in school, but you get to uh, expand your mind and learn things uh, as if you were. So some pretty cool things. They have over 7,000 topics to choose from. 
Uh, go to the thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve to sign up today for your one-month free trial. It's a great deal. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve and sign up today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve. And by a new company uh, that is advertising on the podcast is brentrentslenses.com. Com. Uh, Nick, I know you've been yeah. using Brent Rents lenses for quite a while. Yeah. So like you said, I've been using him for quite a while. I'm actually kind of friends with him too. Uh, he deals with all Canon stuff. He's got a little bit of Fuji stuff. You Nikon, Nikon shooters, you're kind of out coming. of luck. It's, it's, coming. it's coming. But uh, it's really great. He's got um, all the latest gear. Um, I go to him anytime I, I want to try out like the 11 to 24 from Canon, a, a lens that I might not want to buy, but I definitely want to try out. And, uh, he's, you know, he's got all the Sigma, Sigma telephoto lenses. Um, he's just got really, really great gear, really great prices. And, uh, yeah, that I've been using him for a long time. Awesome. Yeah. So he's doing something pretty cool right now. Uh, for the 4th of July, um, you can go to, to brentrentslenses.com um, uh, slash July 4, 2016 special, but you'll just see it on, on Brent Rents Lenses. Um, if you rent, uh, basically July 2, 3, and 4 are totally free. So if you order something on July 1 and return it July 5, it only costs one, uh, you're only charged for one day. Uh, so pretty cool deal. Um, and so when you go to, to rent, be sure to go to brentrentslenses.com and he set up an, also a, a special offer code for listeners of improved photography and that's offer code improve. Like our code is always at all the different retailers. Um, and that'll get you 15% off your first rental. So that's offer code improve at checkout for 15% off your first rent, uh, rental. And we thank Brent for, uh, for providing this service and for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Okay, we have a ton of questions to get through. Uh, let's see if we can uh, can uh, see how many of uh, these questions we can answer. The next one is from Adam Clay, who's taking this one. Um, I am. So what <laughs> step do you take to protect your gear when you're traveling, um, particularly uh, in a backpack or what kind of solutions do you have? I know with all the traveling that we do, if we're sitting down at a table or something like that, I'll normally keep my camera on the table um, in front of me or right next to me. If I have it in a bag, I'll strap the bag around one of the chairs so that no one can get to it. Um, and I find that in the hotel room, yes, you can use the safe. We tend to, when we're in hotel rooms, put the do not disturb on the That's door. That's what I do. Yep. So yep. that they don't come in. And I find that if if I don't have it on, I will leave my laptop out because I know where I put it. And most people, maids and stuff coming in, will know that I know that it's there. Instead of just, you know, if I try and hide it or squirrel it away, then if someone's going through your stuff, they'll, you know, they might think that it'll take a while for you to find that it's missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I do with stuff in a hotel room is I bought a, a product from a company called PackSafe. And what it basically is, it's a wire netting that you you can get them in various sizes. I have the one that fits my camera bag, uh, and it goes in. You put it in the wire net, and you can tighten it up, and then lock this, and you can lock it to something that's fixed to the room. So, say you're in a room without a safe, you can put the 
the mesh around your bag and lock it to something. So yes, they could still get into it, but they can't open your bag while it's in that. They can't physically take your bag out of the room. They could if they had wire cutters or something on them at the time. They could still take your bag, but it's just enough of a, a, a deterrent to put them off, and that's kind of the best you can do, I think. Mm-hmm. Very good. Next question is from Michael Van Hout. Uh, who says, does a crop sensor affect the minimal focus distance of a lens? So every lens has a certain distance that it, it can't focus on anything closer than that. Um, and a crop sensor camera is going to add to the focal length of uh, of the lens, an effective focal length at least. Uh, it's not going to physically change the focal length, but it's going to effectively make it longer. Um, and so the question is, is it going to change anything? I, I had to think about this one. This almost got me for a second, but no, it's not going to affect anything. It's just how close that physical lens can focus. Uh, you may be a little bit more zoomed in or not uh, on your effective focal length, but the, the lens is still going to focus on, on the exact same point. So quick answer, no. <laughs> so, uh, uh, David Foggin says, what advice would you have for somebody that has social anxiety on start when they're starting to photograph people? He actually says shooting people, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he means photographing people. And, uh, so I guess my question would be, I don't know if he's talking about portrait sessions or if he's talking about street photography, but definitely when, when you're doing portrait sessions, uh, oh. just, kind of trying to find some kind of common ground with the person and, and chatting a little bit before you actually start the session helps a tremendous amount. Um, if you just, if you're kind of, you know, you have that social anxiety and you hop right into the photo shoot, that ice never really gets broken. You know, you're in working mode and you find yourself hiding behind your camera rather than, you know, conversing with the people. So just spending the first five, 10 minutes of your photo shoot, like, you know, getting to know the people, breaking that ice, talking, that way the rest of the photo shoot can be comfortable. That That's what helps me a lot is I spend that first little bit talking to the person. You know, barber, you go to get your hair cut. Uh, the barber sits there and chats with you for a while. And it's because you have to spend an hour with them or a half hour with them anyways. You might as well have it be a comfortable hour. And if there was no words spoken between you two, it would be very uncomfortable. So just breaking that ice at the very beginning and chatting, finding something, some common ground to talk about, uh, that helps with my photo shoots. Very cool. Suzanne or uh, Anthony Fuchella says, my wife and I would like to edit and organize images from our Drobo at the same time on two different computers. Ah, bad news on this one. It's just not possible. There just isn't a way to do it. Uh, I think this frustrates everybody. Uh, we'd love to have our main, you know, our, our desktop computer where we have our, our main Lightroom uh, library set up. And then you also want a laptop uh, somewhere that you can go edit uh, elsewhere when you're traveling, etc. Um, and Lightroom just cannot do this. There are a couple workarounds, but I don't recommend any of them. For example, you could take your .lrcat, your Lightroom catalog file, and you could put it in something like Dropbox. <laughs> and then um, you, ed- you edit from it normally. Um, and then when you're done editing, well, it's going to get synced up to Dropbox. And then so when you open it on your laptop, you open it there. Uh, the problem is a Lightroom catalog file, especially when you have a more meaty catalog, it's going to be two or three gigabytes, uh, that file. And so it's, it, you're going to have versioning problems that you're not sure when it's saved and when it's 
synced and it's going to create a mess. I really would not recommend that as a solution. Right now, the best solution is grin and bear it and hope Adobe fixes this eventually. Mm. Uh, Dave Coulter asks, <clears throat> I'm going to start doing panoramas. Any suggestions? Do I need to invest in anything beyond my tripod and ball head? So the, the first and easiest thing you can invest in, and we talked about this recently on tripod, is an L-bracket. L-brackets are really great for panoramas because basically you can mount it vertically and you're going to be swiveling around your sensor. And it's not perfect. It's not like a nodal slide um, that you've probably heard of where it actually um, offsets your camera to get rid of something called parallax. Um, it's not perfect in that way, but it's really, really close, especially if you're shooting a wide angle shot. Um, it, it's all I ever use. Uh, a lot of times if I'm doing a telephoto panorama, I'm using the tripod collar, you know, the, and that offsets your camera a bit and that gets it really close. But as long as you're uh, using an L bracket or a tripod collar, that's generally going to be close unless you're you have something really close to you in the foreground, because that's when you're going to run into what's called parallax. And, uh, and that's when you start getting into nodal slides and all of that stuff. So if you're really, really serious about it, you could look into a nodal slide, um, but really to get you started, just get an L bracket, um, get one of the uh, get one of the fitted ones that are not a universal. We've kind of mentioned that before. Um, when you go to buy an L bracket, you're supposed to get the one that is molded to your camera. Don't get the universal one because the universal one is just literally it's a flat plate with a with a side plate, and that's just not ever going to work very well. You want something that's molded to your camera. That way your camera doesn't slide or swivel inside of that bracket. And that yeah, will get you I, started in panoramas for sure. I can vouch for that, Nick. I got a universal one for my camera and tried it and tried it and tried it. And the amount of fiddling and adjusting and moving and bits and pieces. And I ended up, well, selling it. Uh, and just getting one specifically new. Punning it off to some other poor photography sap. Yeah, yeah, of course I told them it was great, but uh, <laughs> no, buy, buy the one specifically for your camera. It's great advice there. Yep, cool. All right, Ben Aru. Ben says, when travel, traveling internationally, where do you put your tripod? Uh, I, Nick and Neil, I'm going to ask you guys this to see where you guys put yours. Uh, for me, I just put it right on my bag. I have a very small uh, tripod. Um, I love my tripod um, because, it, because of this, because it fits so nicely everywhere. Um, but I just put it right on my bag. The funny thing is, you know, they take your fingernail clippers from you when you go through security. Like you're going to go fingernail clip the pilot to death. But I have this huge club of a tripod and they've never had any problem with it. Every airport I've gone through that nobody's asked me to take it off. So I just keep it right on my, my carry on bag. <clears throat> I always put mine in my checked luggage because I've got a giant tripod and I also have those spikes on the end of my feet. And rather than take those off and try to make it look very small and unassuming, I would rather just throw it in my checked luggage, wrap some clothes around it, and it usually makes it there safe. Yeah, I have a small travel tripod, but I still throw it in my uh, checked luggage. It just because I'm afraid that, okay, normally you do get it in a plane, but it'll be that one time where that one security guy you know, yeah, that would tries stink. to take it off you and then you're you're stuck. So generally what I'll do is I take the ball head off, put it in my uh in my carry on because you know it's expensive and I don't I want to keep an eye on it. But the actual tripod itself, I'll throw in the check luggage just because I don't want to lose it really. 
Mm-hmm. And I put mine in my um, carry-on. I actually put it inside the carry-on bag. Oh. Yeah, I wish I could do that, but my tripod's too big. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I would put it inside. But and that's actually, definitely one of the benefits of having a small tripod. And I actually bought the Platopod with me when we went to St. Martin. And um, that has the little spikes on it, too, and nobody stopped me or anything with it. Cool. cool. Okay, so Tony Hicks asks, um, taking apart and cleaning your tripod, is it necessary and what is the process? So I have probably, I'm not the best one to ask this because I destroy my tripods. Um, But generally, anytime you're shooting in salt water, you should be taking it apart and cleaning it. I don't do that. But I've never cleaned yeah, mine either. I've never done it either. But, right. you know, I've never owned a really nice tripod either. So my I've had nothing but tripod problems in, in my career. So one of the things I do 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 is uh, before I fly home or drive home or when I'm done shooting in the ocean, I will extend all the legs and I will take some soapy water and I will like clean off the legs at least to get the grime off of the easy to get to places, but I've never actually like taken, taken the legs all the way out and cleaned it all the way. Yeah, I should do that. But what I do, I actually find some kind of weird satisfaction in it <laughs> is just for the next couple of weeks. I just listen to the, <laughs> as the sand <laughs> kind of grits through the, 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 uh, knobs there and it eventually wears out. And, but you know, I've, I've had my tripod for years. It's still running strong. Never cleaned it. Maybe I'll regret it someday. Nice. Yeah. I think I'm the opposite to you there, Jim, cause that noise uh, just really annoys me. I can't oh, stand let me do it that again grinding <laughs> so I actually had the tripod I had in China apart last night completely spread all over the house uh, cleaning it to, just to get rid of that noise because uh, it drives me nuts. Were you and able I to put it back together? Any... <laughs> uh, after, yeah, it was a late night trying to get it back together, but yeah, it, it's back together-ish. No spare parts? Uh, only a few, but there's always a few. It's like <laughs> Ikea furniture. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. The next question I thought was hilarious from Dave Coulter says, why does Jim Harmer like crop sensors for landscapes, but Nick Page likes full frame? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you something. If if I like one thing, <laughs> Nick always likes the other thing. And if Nick like, likes one thing, I always like the other thing. Uh, I don't know why we're, maybe maybe that's why we're friends, Nick, is because we do everything the opposite way. Um, the reason that I like a crop sensor for landscape is uh, because you are adding that depth of field and you get smaller lenses and a smaller camera body. Um, there are good reasons, very good reasons to choose uh, full frame as well, which I'm sure Nick is going to tell you here. Um, but I, I, for me, those benefits outweigh the other ones. Um, and for Nick, you know, the other benefits outweigh the, the benefits that I like. It's, it's going to be personal preference again. But what do you think? Uh, well, Jim likes it because he's lazy. I like it because <laughs> I like maximum image quality. So if back button focus is lazy, then crop sensor for added depth of field is also lazy. That is lazy. I agree. It is lazy. Um, it is adding uh, adding uh, depth of field in a lazy way. Agreed. <laughs> hey, we agreed on something. There this is go. good, Nick. We're oh, making nice. progress. Nice. <laughs> All right. Colin Mayer says, um, any tips for taking photos of the moon on cloudy nights, especially with ice haze? <laughs> That's pretty specific. Anybody have any ice haze moon tips? Uh, what is ice haze? <laughs> I don't know what that is. I wondered myself. Yeah, I live I in Florida. We, we don't have either. ice haze. No, I don't think we get it either, I'm afraid. Ice haze. 
you know, I I live far enough north that you would think I would have heard of an ice haze, but I don't know exactly what they're talking about. Um, the thing is, any, photographing the moon at night is really challenging because it's basically like photographing the sun during the day. It's a really high dynamic range scene. So my advice would be to bracket your shots, um, make sure that you're getting at least some shadow information and some highlight information because most people, when they go to photograph the moon for the first time, they blow it out. They just have zero detail in that moon. So if you're trying to get a nice detailed shot with like the, you know, the creepy Disney moon with the clouds crossing it, that's a high dynamic range scene to even get any kind of detail in the clouds. So yeah, uh, your shutter speed is going to be around like one five hundredth of a yeah. second or faster to get, to get the moon fully exposed, you know, to see like the man in the moon, all the detail. Yep. You're going to have a fast, you know, one one thousandth, one five hundredth of a second to be able to do that. Yeah. yeah and then the by the time. You, yeah. And by the time you do that, you have like no detail in those clouds around outside of it. So you have to have that that slower shutter speed in order to blend that in with your your nice detailed moon. Very cool. Okay, Elliot Mullet says uh, he was listening to an old episode of Tripod, and I mentioned something about uh, photography trips and making your photography trips pay for themselves uh, by getting a tax credit and wanted me to elaborate on it. So this gets into, um, I mean, you could really talk about this for a long, long time, um, but here's basically how it works. The requirement is, uh, first of all, this is only United States stuff, but I find that that uh, tax rules often are pretty similar in other countries. So I'll, I'll ask you on this, Neil, and, yeah, and see if uh, it's it's similar for you. Yeah. But but basically how it works is, first of all, your photography has to be earning some money. If your photographer is not earning any money at all, then this isn't going to help you at all. But if you're earning anything at all with your photography, you sell a couple prints during the year, uh, you sell some stock photos, you upload your photos to stock sites, you do a wedding or a couple portrait shoots during the year you're you just have to be earning something with your photography okay assuming we have that part in place then that's income you're going to get taxed on that income uh, even if it's small it should be on your taxes um, and so uh, you don't want to get taxed for that uh, because the government's going to go blow your money on saving ants in California, right? So we don't want to do this. And so the way that you do that is by adding expenses um, on your business, on your photography business. It doesn't matter if you've made an LLC or incorporated or you don't feel like you're a business yet. If you have income from photography, it's a business as far as, as uh, the IRS is concerned. So you need to add some expenses. Easiest way to add some expenses is road trip and you're gonna take your camera and you're gonna throw it in the back of your, your uh, car and you're gonna drive somewhere really cool to take pictures and you're gonna take pictures. Um, and for a photographer, that is an ordinary and certainly a necessary expense is for you to go take pictures in cool places. And so uh, you can write off your miles um, compared to that income. And the goal is that you make your income turn into zero. Uh, by the end of the year, because whenever you buy gear or you drive, you know, you're getting 56 cents a mile or whatever it is for this year. Um, you can write that those prices off against your income. So at the end of the year, you say, yes, IRS, I earned $2,000 by shooting this wedding. But guess what? I drove 4,000 miles this this year, you know, legitimately taking pictures. And it's important to do that to, to build up my business. Then boom, we just killed your your tax liability. 
this is obviously a much more in-depth uh, topic than we can uh, address on a podcast, and you should go get the advice of a tax professional. I really do mean that. That's not just uh, fine print. <laughs> if you're starting a photography business, even if you don't feel like it's big enough to hire a CPA, you know, you still want to use TurboTax, just go talk to a CPA. Say, hey, you know, what's your hourly rate? I just have a bunch of questions. And just get a good setup for your business. I promise you it will earn you money by doing that. A good CPA who can explain the rules to you uh, to help get it set up, even if you're preparing your own taxes, is really, really worth worth uh, the effort. So that's that's the rundown on how it works. Yeah, cool. Jim, basically, basically that's very similar to the system here. You know, as soon as you start earning kind of any sort of money, you'll want to register as a company. And as soon as you do that, well, then you want to balance your books and mileage is just, it's a great way of doing that. So, and it's a legitimate expense as well. So I think it's pretty standard across the globe, that sort of thing. And you count cool. airfare too? Sure. Yeah. Well, well, the rule is it just has to be ordinary and necessary uh, to, to make your business run. And so is it ordinary and necessary for a photographer to buy a jet ski, even if you take pictures while you're on the jet <laughs> ski? No, that's not an ordinary and necessary business expense. But I think it's going to be pretty hard to find a photography business uh, that it wouldn't be an ordinary and necessary expense for you to travel to take pictures, especially if you're selling some of those travel pictures. Very cool. All right, so the last question that we have is Brian Pex. He says, wow, pretty soon it's going to be the 200th show. Do you have any big plans for the big 200? Um, Jim? I have nothing. I have no idea. What are we <laughs> going to do? I, Maybe we should ask the listeners. All right, go to the show notes uh, for this episode on improvephotography.com, and we'd love to hear your suggestions on what to do for episode 200. It's only 20 episodes away. I feel like we should do a big live event. Not not to just like throw you cool. under the bus, but that's what we should do. We should do some kind of live event. That's what I think. Okay, I like a live event. That could be pretty darn cool. You know, I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast. I'm going to say it anyway. I probably shouldn't say this. We've been we've been kicking around the idea just uh, just for, well, we've been talking about it for years. But the last the last three or four weeks, we have really been kicking around the idea of doing a full blown improved photography conference. Um, bringing all the the hosts together um, and and other awesome people that you want to hear from some friends of ours that we've had on uh, as guests on the podcast and stuff and so we've been thinking about it and actually the tentative day that we were thinking about doing it would be in about 20 weeks hmm brian pex you may have just created a monster all right <laughs> all right well thank you guys uh for joining me on on uh, this episode of the podcast really appreciate your insights and helping to uh answer the uh, this question but before we leave everybody we always give you a doodad of the week Nick, what do you got for us first? I see it's a softbox, and that makes me happy because I've never found a softbox that I truly love. So I love my new softbox. I, I've talked about it on the show before, but one of the questions that came through was a recommendation. $220? What are you trying to do to me, Nick? <laughs> no. One of the recommendations was a good quality softbox uh, for, for using speed lights. And the Glow Parapop, I've got the 38-inch Glow Parapop. It's... I, I really like the quality. It's so quick and easy to set up. It's large enough to where you actually get a soft light out of it, and that's different from my previous ones. Um, and it's mobile. You can you can quickly set it up. You can get it where you want it. Uh, a lot of the Speedlight softbox are uh, softboxes are the ty type where you basically put it 
set it up like an umbrella and the the speed light is inside of the soft box ah, and no it's good. like and yeah you just can't ever position that where you need it um, but this is so much better. Um, a lot of time I use this extensively at events because you can literally like hold it in one hand, like a, like a large gun or something, or you can hand it to somebody and they can be walking across a room and you can get that nice soft light. Really, really like it. If you're in the market for a, it's kind of spendy, but it's, these are the kind of things that you never regret buying. It's just like one of those things you him and haw about actually spending the money on. Once you do, you love it. So that's the the Glow Parapop. It's, I have the 38-inch ver, version of it. So. Okay, I love this. I was just reading the Amazon reviews, and this guy gives it only two stars and says he returns it because he pulled out his ruler, and it's actually only 36 inches, not 38 <laughs> like they <are. laughs> That's That's great. People, this is good. Uh, that looks cool. I, You're killing my, my budget here, Nick, but I really have always wanted a really good, good well-made softbox for a speed light uh before this you were using the speed boxes yep. and those always tempted me but i was always afraid i would break it because you know it's more of that umbrella style and it looks like you could just if you crush the top it would break it and this one looks like it's more protected at the top so i'm tempted here yeah Yep. And the thing I didn't like about the previous one is it just wasn't big enough. It was too harsh of a light. It was a very small light source, and it just wasn't quite soft enough. And I, this 38-inch one is much, much softer. That's a pretty good size softbox. Yeah, yeah 38 inches is. is big. And I will, I can't remember who, who this was. Was it you, Neil? Somebody was telling me in China that I should just stop trying to do, be nice to the international folks and trying to, uh, oh, yeah, that <laughs> trying, was to yeah. trying to convert units. Um, because I always try to like, oh, you guys don't know what feet and inches are. So I was trying to, but I always get it wrong. And so, so I think, was it you, Neil? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely me. Yeah. You're, Neil no, just you're, said, you're yeah, never just, quite just right. stop. You're we'll conversion. figure it out. <laughs> you're always wrong. <laughs> All right, Neil, what do you got for us? Uh, well, I'll save you money here, Jim. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Gaffer Tape is my my pick of the week, basically, or my doodad. Uh, it's just so handy if you keep it on you or in your bag. Or what I actually do is wrap several yards of it around one leg of my tripod. So I always have some with me, even when I'm on a shoot. I don't, I don't have to carry the kind of the big roll of tape around it's just handy for just so many things and when something goes wrong or something is fixed or you know it's you can just reach for it you know it's there and you can fix it and it came in handy actually when we were in china uh <laughs> next laughing because you know yep. story. No. Uh, we were <laughs> we were at an outlook and there was quite a steep drop in front of us, so all our cameras were pushed forward as, as far as possible. And, of course, with the wide angle on, you could see the camera beside you. So everybody was inching forward and forward, and forward towards the edge. So we all had our kind of our tripod set up right against this railing. And it was kind of, you know, one leg or two legs beyond the railing and two legs beyond the railing. I just wasn't convinced my camera wasn't going to go hurtling, like, 300 feet down a mountain here. So it wasn't fixed. So I actually got the, the gaffer duct tape and taped it around the tripod to the handrail, to the fixture that was there, and it just gave me the security I needed. So it's, oh, it's good. useful for all sorts of things. 
Yeah. All right, we're we're getting a little <laughs> download problem, but uh, but that sounds good. That sounds good. That's uh, that's one that I many times wish I had it when I'm doing flash stuff. You know, to 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 ta- tape a modifier to the speed light or you know a battery pack or whatever else. Yeah, shooting with Neil was the yeah, first time I ever watched somebody duct tape his camera to a <laughs> to the rail. Like his <laughs> his tripod was literally duct taped to the rail. It was it was very precarious looking. <laughs> All right, Larissa, what do you have? All right, I've got um, Think Tank Red Whips, and this is one of them. And what I use it for is when I'm traveling, I will take it and all the wires and everything that you've got all over the place, I will use it to get all the wires together, and just you can move the... Scrunch upper thingy? You can move the scrunch thing around, and <laughs> I'll put it on all the cords that I've got to kind of keep them organized. And sometimes I use it to tie my hair up. Very cool. Well, <laughs> I don't know about tying my hair up, but that actually looks really handy. Nice. Good good yeah. recommendation. No, all right, for me, I would like to uh, share with uh, you all um, the holly powder. Uh, this is just a holly powder like you would see uh, commonly used at... Uh, um, you know, like, a, what do you call those fun color runs and stuff? Um, anyway, uh, I got a bunch that I'm going to use on a shoot this week in, um, Chicago, um, teaching a workshop there. And, uh, so I got a bunch of this we're going to use in some sports portraits. So pretty excited about that. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but, uh, I'm sure you've all seen photos from it. And so we're going to see how it goes. Uh, so you can just order, you know, different colors of holly powder for 20 bucks on Amazon. And uh, we're, I'm, I'm anxious to see what we can do uh, with portraits. Well, you can find all the doodads of the week at improvephotography.com slash doodads. Uh, we have everything listed for the whole year. Um, sometimes it takes a week or so to, to, to get everything updated, but we're trying to get those as quick as possible. Uh, so check that out at improvephotography.com slash doodads. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on episode 180 of the podcast, and we will see you in another seven days.